Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp Oshart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the EZR program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Why do some of my kids and students not ask questions in class? Is it because of their personality or they don't know what to ask? Or once maybe they did ask and perhaps the teacher didn't respond in an encouraging manner? Or they just don't know how to syntactically formulate a question? Or maybe it's something else. How do we help our kids and students tackle this? Well, grab a pen and paper. We're about to get some answers. Here we go. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to our live SpeechLink podcast, sponsored, of course, by SpeechTherapyPD.com. You are welcome to participate. Just type your question or your comment into the chat, and toward the end of our time, I'll read it and our guest will respond. I'm Shara Beauchart, your speech-language pathologist host, where the goal is to connect and link with outstanding professionals in our field, and we're going to dig in and discover practical information and ideas so that we can improve what we do, so our students and our clients can improve what they do. And to help us do that. Today, my guest is Lisa Chatler. Lisa, I'm so glad that you're here. Let me tell everyone a little bit about you. Lisa Chatler has her MA, CCC, SLP, and is a fellow of the California Speech-Language Hearing Association, CASHA, and in recognition of her outstanding clinical services, her teaching, and service to CASHA and related organizations. Now, it all started when she received her undergraduate and graduate degrees in communication disorders, as well as a minor in music performance from California State University in Long Beach, which is my hometown. (laughs) Soon thereafter, in 1982, she joined the Los Alamitos Unified School District as an SLP and remained there until 2019. Wow. And after 37 years, she retired with distinction. But that's not the whole story. During many of those years, she also managed her own private practice and was either a clinician, instructor, and or clinical supervisor for California State University Long Beach, California State University Fullerton, California State University Northridge, Chapman University, Newport Speech and Language Center, the Stepping Stones Group, and the Pacific Coast Speech Services. Needless to say, she's done a lot of therapy. (laughs) Okay, Lisa is a pay-it-forward kind of person. For years, she's been involved with the California State University Long Beach Communication Disorders Advisory Board, the Pearson Publishing National Speech-Language Pathology Advisory Board, several ASHA committees, and many CASHA positions, including the Director of District 8. Most recently, Lisa was a co-presenter at the 2018 ASHA Convention and 2019 CASHA Convention, and all of them were student-focused presentations on practical language instruction. One of the topics was called, When You Pick Up a Pencil, You Stop the Interaction. I think that one's, I would love to have seen that one. Now, in full disclosure, I've known and admired Lisa for over two decades. She's a terrific person and an amazing therapist. And I do know that she's still doing part-time therapy and supervision, yeah, at a junior high school, (laughs) okay? And rightly so, girl, you are so good at it. So welcome to the speech link, Lisa. Thank you, Shar. It is. I'm humbled to be here. It is an honor to to be your guest and collaborate with you after your illustrious career. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Well, we're we're talking about questions today. I remember years ago, you know, I used to grab some WH picture cards and work on what and who and where and all of that. And I think we're going way beyond that. 
I'd kind of like to know, how did you begin your quest for deeper information about questions with kids? That's a good question. I have actually two interests around questions. The first being why so many of my students don't ask questions in class. As you mentioned, I've spent most of my career working with adolescent students, middle school and high school. I had a very dear friend that liked to write a goal about self-advocacy and asking for assistance. And my students wouldn't do that if the room was on fire. They just wouldn't. And I wanted to know more about why they wouldn't ask what that was all about and what I could do to maybe help them a little bit in asking questions. Because those goals, the written for advocacy, sort of set everybody up for failure. And that wasn't what I wanted to see happen. So that's one aspect of question asking that I started to look into to really understand what that was all about. The second aspect of questions that really interests me is the formulation part. My students have a lot of trouble, first of all, answering questions, particularly if the question is asked in a different way than they were accustomed. For example, they would get a a test, a class test, and on whatever curriculum they were learning, whether it's history or science or literature, and they'd get this nice study guide from the teachers because the teachers really want the kids to be successful. So they give them a study guide. So the kids study the study guide and they spend several hours with their parent learning the study guide. And the next day, the question on the test is worded a little differently and the students fail the test. And that really bothered me. I knew what kind of effort that the students had put into studying. And even more so, I knew what kind of effort the parents had put into it. And it just wasn't yielding the kind of result I think that everybody wanted. And that's comprehension and the ability to apply the information. So I looked into what's a better way than reading material or watching a video and or using picture cards and asking the WH questions. What's a better way to teach question answering? And my answer was, teach them how to ask the questions. It's kind of like what our typically developing kids do in class is they look at the material and then they write their own questions and they get together in collaborative groups and they ask each other questions. Well, my students had a tough time participating in that because it was Mm -hmm. formulating the questions was so, so hard. So I wanted to answer that and develop the ability to teach them to ask questions, partly so that they can answer questions better. And partly because questions are absolutely essential. The ability to ask questions is essential for academic success, social interaction, and functioning, just functioning in the community and in the world. If you don't ask questions, you're missing out. Well, I would add one more inner conversation. I mean, as we go through our day, it's like, oh, should I get up right now? Okay, let's see. What top am I going to wear? Should I do my hair? Oh, didn't I take that pill yesterday? Or, oh, should I take it now? Uh, What should I have for breakfast? Oh, what route should I take to work? (laughs) I mean, that's how we make it through our day, really, is just asking questions. You are formulating your everyday decisions into a question in your mind which kind of goes along with the ability to wonder about something. I like to teach students the concept of wonder and curiosity by using that language as well. So we kind of got a lot of layers here in this topic of questions. Yes, yes. Well, now, before we go any further, I would like to clarify that the kinds of things that you're going to be talking about are things that we can do in the elementary level, because I'm assuming that here we have these junior high kids and high school kids, they probably didn't do it in elementary. And if it had been addressed and dealt with at an earlier level, maybe as a junior high therapist, you wouldn't have had to have addressed it. I mean, I don't know. 
can it be tackled earlier than uh, well, junior I high and high school? Strategies can go down as far as little tiny children. It's because I'm going to talk about how I use context, how everything is context yeah. based. So whether yeah. you're whether you're talking about literature that they do in in high school to kill a mockingbird, for example, whether they're using that or you're using your basic primers, the process is the same. It's just how you go about it. And I have very competent colleagues who did a lot of questions. So a lot of times we could get the kids to answer the who, the where, the what kinds of questions, struggle a little bit farther with the when, the why, and the how, particularly as you hit that seventh grade material, which is so much harder than the sixth grade and and material before that. So I think it was addressed in earlier years. It's just that we're just trying to take it to a whole new level and make it stick. Yeah, it's that sticking piece. It's the application. And it, it always is. What we do in our therapy room and our therapy session has got to transfer into life and into the classroom. I mean, it just has to, but yeah. And a lot of it's that pragmatics piece and so on. So, okay. So tell me why can't some kids ask for help or ask for clarification? What did you find? I mean, I know, you know, in 30 seconds or less, <laughs> you know, but what what's the crux of it? I came across a great article a few years ago written by uh, Ryan Gein and Midgley. And it really was about why do some students avoid asking for help? And what they determined was that part of it was the climate in a classroom way before the kids became an adolescent. They Mm -hmm. determined that classrooms that were really high on social emotional learning, where the teachers valued the intrinsic reward that come from the learning and the process that fostered more question asking than teachers who had a more competitive, relative focused classroom. So what the, does that mean? The relative focused classroom is one that values competition. You're sort of like the kid who has the most answers right. I remember when I was in first grade, this sticks out so, so strongly in my mind. When I was in the first grade, yeah. I was a really good student in the reading and the spelling, not so much in math. So you got to know that I had my weaknesses. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the teacher rewarded the kid who got the most spelling words right would be the first one to get a brand new box of crayons. I didn't get the crayons. I came in second. Look how strongly that has stuck in my mind for more years than I'm going to admit to. That's a relative focused classroom. In a task focused classroom, everybody gets the crayons, but you get the crayons for what you can do, not how you are compared to the other students. Everybody gets crayons. Okay. We're talking about those early years. I am wondering, I mean, there's, I bet there's so many different components to all of this. You know, is the child listening? Does he know how to listen? Or is he ADHD and he's all over the place and he's not listening? And he should have been listening to the round robin story that was going on, but he wasn't. And the teacher asks him or her directly, well, tell me about the blah, blah, blah. And the kid's like deer in the headlights. That's the genesis of anxiety. You know, you get the kid who can't answer, and the really, it's a really can't. It's not a won't. It's okay. a can't. And kids who are al- already hardwired for anxiety are already making the decisions to themselves. If I ask, it's going to make me look dumb in the eyes of other kids, so I'm not going to mm-hmm. ask. And it may be that it's an approach avoidance kind of thing that, hey, I'm just going to check out here and bother my seatmate here, or I'm going to draw, or I'm going to drop my books and pretend to pick them up. Because if she asks me, or if he asks me, I know I'm not going to know the answer. Maybe there's a defeatist kind of thing going on. Yeah, it's really interesting to kind of look into why that is. And it concerns me because I I was working with the kids, the older kids, and it didn't matter that they could ask because we're sitting together in my room and practicing asking for clarification or asking for repeats. Of course they can do it. 
they're just not going to in the classroom. I know it's sad. It's just, it's hard to watch my students who I really love not be successful in advocating for themselves. But there are other things that we can do. Yes. All right. So just because we do it in our therapy room doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to transfer into the classroom or any other situation. Right. Okay. So are you going to tell us how to work with the with the teachers and maybe how to generate that ability so we have some crossover and transfer? I'm going to try. And these are all possible? suggestions from uh, Michelle Garcia Winner and, and Pamela Crook whose work I have a lot of respect for as well. So you start out with the kids don't make a choice not to ask questions. Kids don't make a choice to have anxiety. So understanding that it isn't a choice really helps to set the stage for some success there. We can't assume that the kids who are quiet are fine with that. You just want to be left alone. We don't want to assume that because when we will leave them alone, nobody's benefiting. So the advice is to actually seek out that student on a regular basis and approach them at a time that's perhaps less conspicuous than in the middle of a lesson. But don't ask them, do you need help? Because they're always going to say no. How can I help you? Is just a different way. Ah, How okay. can I help it? They're going to do everything they can to look like they know what they're doing. I had a student who I adored this boy and I had him from seventh grade up through 12th grade. He was the master at the side eye looking at the other kids to see what the other students were doing and like trying to look busy. So he worked really hard to try and do that, but he wasn't busy. I mean, he just made it look that way. So we have to kind of get past that and look at them a little more closely to see what's going on with those kids. So I really like that kind of going to them and asking them. I had a wonderful principal at my middle school who started a program that she called Running to the Kids. And I don't know if it was just something that she did or it was more general. She was principal of the year, so I was pretty proud of the work that we all did. And kids who were at risk, we all had two or three or four kids who were at risk, and we actually ran to those kids. We would meet with those kids regularly to see what it was that we could do to help them. So this kind of reminds me of this running to the kids. Don't wait for them to have a problem or to a a problem to manifest itself. We all know we would sit as a big group and talk about the kids that needed more support so that we weren't all like descending on one or two kids. So we would split up the kids to see who was going to be responsible for running to that student. It was so successful in terms of creating a campus that was supportive and kind. So that was pretty cool. Okay, so that if I want to implement that, when am I doing that? Am I doing it when they're in their reading or in their social studies? Is there a particular time? Do we know that when they're especially non-committal, or is it just any time during the day, or is there a certain block that you all decide to do it in, or what does this look like? It was done mostly not during class time. Although those okay. teachers had extra eyes on those kids, as you can imagine. It wasn't done during class time. It was during okay. like passing period. Some That would be informal. But they would try and okay. meet with the kids before school or during lunch. Hey, you know, it's Tuesday. Come to my room during lunch. I've got some cookies. And then the kids would come in. And you know, you feed a middle schooler and they'll do anything. <laughs> well, yeah. After school. Pretty much any of us, yeah. <laughs> and it was it was more food. structured, and then we had to document when we saw them and how frequently, because that's just kind of what you do. It was actually very, very successful, and I think it was a really warm program. Okay, so so you're running to the child, and so you're asking them if there's anything that you can help them with. Is that what you're doing? You're you're interacting along those lines. You check with that student's other teachers to see where they're struggling. Okay. 
And then you address that. And you address it because you're not going to uh, give him the opportunity to say, oh, everything's fine. Because right, right. my, my student, the one I was referring to, everything's fine. It's fine. Everything's great. It's all good. Mm, yeah. And he hasn't turned a thing in in math in three months. All right. So it is a team approach. Okay. I gotcha. But it's just you and the child, the, the student interacting. Yeah. But that's kind of, in our jobs, we're doing that all day long. So that isn't necessarily special, but I tried to carve out time that wasn't during the student's speech time. It would be lunch or before school. Come on by, you know, we're going to see how you're doing on math. And so that teacher would be the one to take the lead in developing some strategies to support that student's success. Because that kid, we're going to assume that kid is never going to ask all of them. Yeah, probably. Good idea. Okay, great. What else have you got for us? So let's go back to what do we do when we approach the kid and how can I help you? So rather than having the expectation that that student is going to verbalize, we're going to say, show me where it's hard or show me what you don't point to what's what you don't understand. Okay, so they bring their work in. Well, this is even in class. I'm going back to we're going to approach that student in class, the one that doesn't ask. And we're going to say, how can I help you? And okay. show me or point to what's what you're not understanding. So that's one really good strategy. Also to use visuals with our students to the extent possible. Because it takes that need for language and takes it down. If they could explain what was hard, probably they could do it. Yeah, probably they would. Yeah, if they could, they probably would. Point to where it's hard and they've got that stuff. I'm so envisioning science because that's so, there's so much in those science textbooks. They're so packed with tier two and tier three vocabulary. Yeah, vocab is horrendous. It's really hard. So using, having them point to what they're not understanding and using visuals, charts or drawing pictures or examples So I really like that as ways of communicating with a student that's a little bit less stressful for everybody. And here's something else that I think could be really helpful in terms of building a confidence a little bit is at a time that's not when they're struggling, but a time when everything's okay. So you sort of gauge their feelings. How did you feel when you were struggling, what did that, is on a one to five scale, how stressful was that for you? How anxious were you? And then the kid gives that an assignment, a three, a four, a five, whatever it was. And then using that sort of metacognitive kinds of skills, say, so how did you feel after we worked on that math problem on a one to five scale? How was the anxiety? And they go, oh, one or two. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm so glad that what I did with you made you feel less anxious or more calm. Because we're what we're building is that that meta, those meta skills, the ability to think about doing this. So I really like that for my students as well. Because once they're anxious, it's so hard to remember what it feels like when they're not anxious. Yes. And I, I really like that. And I have found that praise words are not necessarily the best thing to do. I'd like to turn it around to the child or to the student, to the person. And what do you think? You know, what's going on there? What happened there? What's on your paper? What came out your mouth? What did you say? Oh my gosh, yeah, you said that beautifully. Did you notice that kind of thing? And I want them to just make that discovery. And there's nothing better than that so that they have a sense of, hey, I can check in and do that with myself again. But then also, yeah, I did do that and I am improving. And I like them to make that self-discovery. I totally agree with you. You just hit the nail on the head for one of the other strategies, and that is explaining or sharing how pleased we are with the communication now that we're having with the student. I love talking to you. You make me feel like a really good teacher. Wow. 
I don't know if I ever said that to a child. You make me feel like a really good speech pathologist, a good speech therapist. I, I in fact, I know I never said that. Have you said that? Oh, yeah. to, to students because Have it's you? true. Because yeah. it's really true. The ones that make me feel successful. There's nothing better. And I will explain that to them because another thing, now this has nothing to do with questions, but I'm all about, I'm all about feelings in our communication, whether it's a narrative, whether it's a conversation, I'm all about labeling and identifying feelings for what they are and doing it visually as well as verbally. And so when I'm successful, by the way, that's a word I use and I use it a lot. What you did just made me feel successful. That's golden. Absolutely golden. And I use the word successful in my work, superimposing feelings on the narratives and the interactions. That's one of my favorite words. It's not my only favorite word, but one of my other, my number one favorite word. Now, you didn't ask, but I'm going to offer that. Uh, uh, What is your number one favorite word? Valued. Valued. If the interaction between the two characters is a positive one and they're talking and they continue the conversation, the one that was not the one initiating, but the other one, the recipient, they're going to feel valued. Our kids have a tough time feeling valued. They're not successful in school. Their social relationships can be iffy and they have a tough time feeling valued. So it's a word that I use liberally. Wow. Oh, that is a good word. That is a very good word. Well, isn't there, there's nothing more that we want in our profession than to feel that our work and we are valued. Why would my students want anything else? They just don't have the language to talk about that, to do a social behavior map where the end result is that both characters, you and the other person, feel valued. I mean, man, that's powerful. And that's metacognitive and that's social emotional learning. And it's all good. Yes, it is. Definitely. And it develops that trust. Without that, we don't have anything. Right. And that has to make an impact. The kids are going to remember that. And they're going to want that validation and that value again. And hopefully they expand and try it with other people. That is the hope. And I will, I know this is sort of an aside from questions, but it, well, maybe it isn't. At IEP meetings, after I've reported on how the student is doing with me or at school, I'll ask, I always will ask the parent, does that sound like your kid? Are you seeing that? How is he doing with questions at home? I have a one student that I worked with for three years, and I hadn't seen him for a while. And this is a kid with autism. He was a little bit lower function. He's sort of a rote kid. And I'd been working on rote conversation, the same thing over and over. But he did it every time, so it was fine. One day, I hadn't seen him for about six months because he was now at high school, and I ran into his dad at Starbucks. And the dad said, so my son came home and he asked his mom, how was her day? Whoa. Whoa. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. I'm sure that was huge. The dad was very, very pleased, obviously. And, And of course, that made my day, my week, my month. It did. It did. made you feel valued. <laughs> well, do you have others on that list or do you want to head into something else? Yeah, I think we can probably go into something else. Okay, terrific, terrific. Well, is there anything else that you want to talk about with the metalinguistics piece? Or do you want to move into the context piece? What's your pleasure? Let's move into What's the context pleasure? piece because those, are, those involve metalinguistics as well. Okay. All right. Good. So how can we use contextualized language for teaching students to understand, formulate, answer questions, etc.? What can we do? Where I started to go was, I wonder if I teach my students 
how to formulate the questions. Am I going to get a better ability to answer questions? I, I thought that was the case. And my research showed that that, yes, that is the case. But I think that there's a lot of things that really resulted from it that were that were really fun and exciting to implement with my students. Contextualized instruction really helped save my career. (laughs) You know, little picture cards and stuff were kind of, they weren't interesting to my students and they weren't really engaging them either. And over the last, I would say the last 10 or 15 years, the nature of my students became more complex, lower functioning, more involved with higher expectations all around. So Mm -hmm. I needed to find some things for them that would increase their engagement so I could get more bang for my buck in a lesson. And scheduling was always a challenge at middle school and high school, mm-hmm. which meant that I wasn't always able to form groups that were homogeneous. And I really wanted to increase my time in the classrooms, collaborating with the teachers. So mm-hmm. how do I know what the students can do in terms of question asking? Go back to the dynamic assessment. Again, I go back to what I've learned from social thinking and that double interview I thought was just a brilliant thing to do. So in that process, after I asked the student about that student and really modeled for them what was in a conversation, a curiosity kind of a conversation, then it was their turn. I definitely summarized it all. And I say, so how did I do? Because I really want the student to understand that I'm keeping information about them in my head. So how did I do? Let's see, you like, you really like to play football and you like to go skateboarding with your friends, John and Jim. And they were always so amazed that I remembered this stuff. So verbalizing that, model that for them. Okay. So give me, give me an example Okay, so you've got you and and the student sitting there. What do you do first? Do you ask the questions first? Yes, and I'll ask, you know, I really like questions about their their interests, and I would develop a topic, whatever it is they told me. I would ask more questions to find out more information about it. And I modeled WH questions, typically, because that's what I'm looking for in the assessment part. And when they turn it around. So then I would find out information about that student. When it was their turn, I would, like I said, I would summarize what I'd learned. And then it was their turn. And I would say, so now it's your turn to find out about me. You can ask me anything you want to find out about me. And oh, here are some photos you can use. If you can't think of questions, you can use these photos. And they were pretty high interest showing me doing, doing things with like my family and my friends that I thought would elicit the questions. And that's the that protocol is in Michelle Garcia Winner's book, Thinking About You, Thinking About Me, second edition. It's in the back. So I'm looking for that student to ask me, like, well, who were you with? Where were you? Where was this taken? And what I found, what I found is that Oh, very, very often, this was initially very often that the students would start with yes, no questions Mm -hmm. and they would stick with yes, no questions. So basically Mm -hmm. what they were doing is making some smart guesses about what I was doing with whom, where and when and why. And they would verify their smart guess. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but that's not an efficient way to make me feel valued. They're in control uh-huh. of the conversation. Uh-huh. I'm not saying that to them clearly because I've got, I'm recording it so I can transcribe it and right. see what it is they're doing. So in the end, I then analyze the questions mostly, but comments too, and count the number of WH questions and, and then the break that down into what kinds of WH questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how and analyze that information. Like I said, typically there would be a whole lot more yes, no's than there would be WH's. So that's how I would have some baseline data. 
So do you play this back or do you ever play it back for the student so they can hear? Maybe they could make that discovery. Or is it just strictly an analysis, strictly diagnostic? I'm not wanting in an assessment to do anything that's going to get them to think that I would be critical. Okay. So it's strictly assessment. Gotcha. If we're going to do this after I've been with them for three years, then it won't matter because we've already have a a trusting relationship, but it really gives me some baseline data so that three years hence, I would be able to do it again, or my colleague at the high school would do it again. And then we'd have a different set of data, hopefully with a lot more WH questions in it because we've spent some time teaching it. So that's where I get my baselines from. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. So as far as working on the contextual piece, are you talking more about stories or articles or, you know, I've even used poems and songs and, you know, all those kinds of things, but what is it that you have used? I love doing context-based instruction. There's, I did it before I knew there was research to show that it was a more efficient way to do it because (laughs) I don't want to be bored with what I'm doing personally. I want to be excited about the material I'm using. So let's see. I really like YouTube videos. I like wordless videos. Just as a a word of caution, don't ever show a kid a video that you haven't watched first because it could be a great topic. But YouTube videos, sometimes they're stories. Sometimes they're expository. And (laughs) there's a difference between a narrative story, whether it be a a, a fictional or a non-fictional, a narrative story and an expository that's a different structure. Just know it's different. It won't really matter in the big picture, but just to know that it's different so that you can talk about expository versus a narrative with the kids. For the kids that have like the lower cognitive levels, there's some wonderful stuff right now that are available on the internet. Vooks books, epic books are great. One of my favorite websites for articles is Good News Network. I got a lot of mileage on Frankie the Traveling Goat. Oh, (laughs) that's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's pretty cute. And it was a great article. Newzella. And there's other things that we could suggest too. But you kind of get the idea about websites that are just really helpful. And it just is like costs nothing. That's what's so amazing. Yeah. Like in Epic Books, they read you these books and they're wonderful books. And there's, it's just really, really awesome. Okay, so is it Epic? I'm not even familiar with those. Epic.com? Epicbooks.com? It's probably on the resources. If not, I will send you that link to the website. Evooks, V-O-O-K-S. They're books. So I, I get my material in those ways. There's a lot of books that have been written that are read aloud on YouTube. So that's another place to get it. I love instructional videos. Like it could be ridiculous, but if the kids are interested and you're interested, how to make towel animals, for example, was something that was, we did a, got a lot of mileage out of. I did some lessons on where you want to go in the world. And we did virtual tours where I had 24 virtual tours behind some tiles on a power Google slideshow and the kids could actually pick whichever one they wanted to go to because the activities were all the same. So that kind of gives you an idea. And if any of your listeners want some examples, I'll share them with you. You can send them along. I'm happy to share the work that I did. Okay. All right. Great. Great. So then I create some activities that go along with And that's really the thing is like, I'm really excited about the material that I've chosen because I don't want to be bored because I want to be excited about my material because it keeps the kids more engaged. I'll do some vocabulary. I'll do a vocabulary activity, but I'll choose three words that are tier two or tier two or three words and then use them in paraphrasing activities because my kids don't know how to paraphrase either. That's one of my favorites. But asking questions is really what we're talking about today. So what I will do with that is I will identify six or eight details from the video or the text. 
And I try to get a who, a what, a where, a when, a why, a how, and maybe a what doing question or, or a detail. And I list the details. So I said, you don't have to answer any questions. How cool is that? Because I'm going to give you all the answers. And then we work as a group to identify the category of information that detail represents. So if it's a person, I'm going to have the students identify that. So who? If it's an action, if it's one action, they'll identify it's what happening. If it's several actions together, that'll be a how because it's a process question. So you kind of get the idea. I give them the answers and we're as a group going to formulate the question. Ah, like it. I like that. But I'm really going for that meta-linguistic stuff here when I'm yeah. saying, oh, this is a person. It's going to be a who. Exactly. And yeah. over and over and over again every week. They don't mind the repetition because what I'm right. wanting them to do is associate who with people or persons so that when they get that question on the test in science class and it's written differently, but it's the same information, at least they have a fighting chance that their answer could be right or partly right if it's a who question and they're answering with a a name of a person or identifying a person. That gives them a fighting chance because the kids don't even necessarily understand. They do get who and where. Those are usually issues, but it's the when because when is so vague. It's rarely 3.30, the answer. Right. right. It's usually a time frame. It's before, it's after, it's a during, it's last century. Right. A season of whatever. Yeah. So that is one of the things that I work on really hard with the kids. And I do that, having a question and answer activity, pretty much whatever the material that I'm using. For kids that can't formulate their own questions, I would have, and I've had this this past semester, I had the SDC students in junior high, and they really couldn't even formulate the questions. So I would, we was, I did a lot of matching. Here's the, the six details. Here are the six answers. Or I would, it was nice when on Google Slides because I could highlight keywords that they were missing. And we worked on question asking that way. And then if there were times in my lessons, I, I really liked Jeopardy because I could make up my own Jeopardy game yeah. and make it with those questions and those answers. And that competition they really enjoyed. Everybody wins because irrespective of where you are in the question answering or question asking continuum, I'm going to support your success. You're never going to be wrong because if you don't know the answer or you can't formulate the answer, I'm going to support you so that you can. That's right. That's right. Because that's what they will remember. I hope so. Well, I hope so too. Okay. Excellent. All right. I have one last question for you. And this is more of a life question, okay? But it has to do with your therapeutic life. What would be a really effective nugget or something that you have found that's especially helpful or that has been especially helpful in your therapeutic life that you'd like to share with us? That's a really good question. I think that the concept of errorless teaching really speaks to my heart. I don't ever want a kid to be wrong. So using prompting hierarchies to support a child's success helps them be successful in whatever it is they're doing. And it also allows me to have groups that are heterogeneous and to be in the classroom which even in a special ed classroom, the students are heterogeneous. I'm going to support you, Shar, in a different way that I would support my student who never asked a question so that both of you can 
participate in the lesson more actively. So I'm really a proponent of using prompting hierarchies, both for the prompting aspect and also for data collection at the end. Okay. How does, how does that work? As a data collection? Yeah. Transitioning it into data collection. How would that work? Using a prompting hierarchy, and I'm, I'm particularly fond of a Dr. Jill Duthie's clinician's hierarchy for advancing therapy, but there's a bunch of prompting hierarchies, and it really doesn't matter which one you like. You just need to know it. At the end of a lesson, like in a classroom, I've got all the kids listed on a paper and a clipboard, and at the end of the lesson, I know how much support I need to give to all of the kids in the classroom because I know those students. I know the ones that even aren't mine. And I can, at the end of that yeah. lesson, when I after I've walked out, I can jot down a number in terms of what I had to do to support their success. And so what I'm looking for is increasing independence because they're gonna, their answers are going to be right. It's not 80% accuracy anymore. It's 100% accuracy. Ah, okay. It's 100%. Now, what did I have to do to get that kid to be 100% accurate? If I had to do a super a lot, I might be taking the activity down and making it a little bit simpler for them. But that's the work that I need to do. But if I mark down that the kid was at a prompting a level two, kind of getting started, and they were at a level one last week, that to me would be progress. I can measure yes. progress that way. Okay. So a prompting hierarchy, does that go up to five? Does it go up to 10? Or it just depends on the hierarchy that you're using? I think it goes depends on the hierarchy. Dr. Duthies is five. And is that D-U-T-H-I-E? Correct. How do you spell that? Okay. Okay. So you would just Google <laughs> Jill Duthie. It should be on the ASHA website. It's chat, C-H-A-T. And it's short for Clinician's Hierarchy for Advancing Therapy. But there are lots of prompting hierarchies. So I imagine if you go into the practice portal, you'll find others. Okay, Good. We do have a few minutes left. I remember you mentioning a boy, was it Joshua, a next door neighbor? And that was kind of an interesting story. Tell me about that story. Well, he lives not doesn't live next door, let's put it that way. But we are neighbors in the same community. But he's okay. the one, I mean, he he's the wouldn't ask questions and always looked like he was busy, but had a hard time really accessing the curriculum. So one of the things that that we actually developed was a better way to communicate with teachers that would work for him. This was in high school because in middle school, teachers would go to him. But by high school, teachers really weren't going to him as much. So we developed a system for you've got a concern, you have a question, you're going to email your teachers, send them an email. And that really helped. That really helped. And the fact that the first teacher he did that with in the ninth grade was really warm and positive with him when he did that. Again, that social emotional piece. Yeah. And I wonder, because the current generations are more oriented to being online, on their phone, interacting via texting and all of that, I wonder if that is a factor in this verbal exchange and asking questions and clarifications and so on. Would that have anything to do with it, do you think? Well, I got to say that that didn't appear in any of the research that I did. So that's another question that I might have to do some research on. Well, please do. (laughs) Let me know how it goes. (laughs) Because, I mean, it is, and it has become ubiquitous and just something that's expected and that we just see in young people. I mean, there's entire generation here that have never really just don't even like to speak on the phone necessarily. (laughs) They do everything via texting and so on. So yeah, and emails maybe, maybe a little Twitter here and there. But what is it? What are the chats that people are doing? You're asking Um, me? Yeah, well... (laughs) 
Yeah, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? The whole technology piece. But I do know that it is it is the primary way that a lot of young people communicate rather than the verbal interactive piece. So, so it's yeah. pretty noisy at lunchtime where the kids eat their lunches. So I know yeah, they're talking. So there is. There's they're a, talking. Yeah. They're, okay. I'm, 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 I am very heartened to yes. hear that. <laughs> I'm very heartened to hear that. We will wrap up here. And I just, Lisa, I just appreciate you so much. And you are just a wealth of information and ideas and practical knowledge. And yet you go, you know, you do your homework and you have a lot of, of good evidence-based information as well. And just, I appreciate it. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you for Thank making you. me feel valued today, Shar. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I'm so glad, too. Well, you know, it, it is such a very important thing to feel valued. You also are very successful, I think, in, in what you did tonight. Okay? Thank Just you. Just so you know that. Yes, thank you. And I do want to thank all of you for being here and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast. Now it's visual, where you learn practical information and you earn CEUs. It's pretty cool. And I appreciate your positive comments, your reviews, and your support. Now, as you do know, the SpeechLink meets every other Thursday at 7 o'clock Eastern Time, 4 o'clock Pacific. I would like you to make a note, though, because of the, the holiday coming up at the, in July 4th. The next time that we meet is going to be July 15, same time. And our guest is Regina Lemon Bush, PhD, and she will share with us actually a topic I have never heard addressed. She is talking about the art of reading, understanding, and interpreting research journal articles. I think that's going to be pretty interesting, pretty interesting. And as we wrap up, just log into your speechtherapypd.com account, take the quiz, do the evaluation, and print out your certificate. And then in a few days, the audio version of this episode will be available on all the popular podcasts like Apple Podcast and TuneIn and Podbean and so on. Do know you are greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for all that you do for your therapy kids. See you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit charboshart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.